The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. go. Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. Times are still crazy. Things are still in flux. Everything is bizarre. The center never holds. What a world we live in, and what a time to be alive. Thank goodness we have this podcast to share our thoughts with one another. Thank goodness we can breathe. Thank goodness we are all still hanging on. Man, oh man. So, we've got a good show today. We're finishing up our look at Chekhov's four major plays. Today we have The Cherry Orchard, which is probably Chekhov's best-loved play, and certainly it's most performed, as critic Richard Gilman notes. Mike Palindrome is here. Mike, our old friend, El Presidente himself. Simple pleasures, people. Simple pleasures. For me, it's talking books with Mike. That's one of them. And with you. The Cherry Orchard was from 1904, and it's yet another familiar pattern. It falls into the reception of it. The Moscow Art Theater staged it, and Stanislavski sank his teeth into it, and Chekhov worried that Stanislavski was getting it all wrong. It's about a woman who presides over an estate which has been in her family for generations, only now it's no longer profitable or viable for them to own. Serfdom has ended, and ways of life are changing, and the cherry crop, for on on this estate there's a majestic cherry orchard, so vast and vibrant it's one of Russia's crown jewels. But the cherry crop does not pay for itself any longer. Change must occur. And the descendant of serfs arrives, and he's a merchant now, and he has some advice for the family, and he says, hey, what are you going to do? sell this thing? You have to decide. A student is there to helpfully say, this is not just about your family. This is what's happening to Russia. This is the the social and economic change our society is going through. But of course, suffused with Chekhov's genius, we don't see any of this in plain black and white terms. The family isn't of tragic victims of circumstance, and the merchant who pushes them towards selling the place isn't a a noble hero, or a mustache-twirling villain. And the student isn't just the voice of pure truth and reason. The play is about human beings responding to a specific scenario, and the universality comes out of the characters, not out of the author's grand ideas. And as if to emphasize how tricky this is, once again, Chekhov and Stanislavski, the great author and the great man of the theater, could not see eye to eye. Chekhov said, I've written a comedy, and in places it's a farce. And Stanislavski wrote to him and said, what are you talking about? This is a tragedy through and through. Critic J.L. Stein got at the slippery duality, the contradictions here, the subtleties, when he wrote the following, quote, In the Cherry Orchard, Chekhov consummated his life's work with a poetic comedy of exquisite balance. 
but so treads the tightrope that his audience has a hard time keeping its wits. This ultimate exercise in Chekhovian comedy is a lesson in funambulism. If, like recent Soviet audiences watching the work of the Moscow Art Theater, they want rousing polemics from Trofimov, that's the student, they can hear them. If, like most Western audiences, they want to mourn for Madame Branevsky and her fate, they can be partly accommodated. It is possible to see Luba and Gaev as shallow people who deserve to lose their orchard, or as victims of social and economic forces beyond their control. It is possible to find Anya and Trofimov far-sighted enough to want to leave the dying orchard, or terribly ignorant of what they are forsaking. But if production allows either the heroics of prophecy or the melodrama of dispossession to dominate, then all of Chekhov's care for balance is set at naught, and the fabric of the play is torn apart. Mm, All of Chekhov's care for balance. That's a nice way of putting it. That's where we are with this. So Mike and I will take our ten favorite lines of the play. We're doing a draft, but we selected them in narrative order. Act one, and then act two, and so on. So we will walk through the play as we select. We'll describe, we'll give you some context for the plays if you haven't seen it ever or recently. So let's take a quick break. Then we will hear from a few listeners. And then let's dive into the profound, majestic, tragedromedy, The Cherry Orchard. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Our first email today is from Stella. Subject, well done email. Well, Stella, that remains to be seen. I'll have to see if this email is well done. No, I'm just kidding. It's a very nice subject matter, she means. she. It's an email to say, well done. Dear Jack, hi. Thanks for your great job. I rediscovered Charles Dickens, thanks to you, and I enjoy listening to your podcasts each time. This year has been so difficult for all of us, and your literature world has made it easier. Thanks once more. Happy New Year, Stella. Athens, Greece. Thank you, 
Stella. I am so glad to hear it. I'm so glad to hear from someone in Athens. A city, wow, one of the great cities in the history of civilization. I'm so glad you rediscovered Dickens. What a great way to start the new year. There's plenty in Dickens to keep you company for quite a while. Zarepa writes with another quick one. Hi, Jack. I was wondering whether you'd consider doing a podcast on Publius Terentius Afer, the African slave who was to Shakespeare what Shakespeare is to us. He was incredibly popular during the Renaissance and Middle Ages and was also admired by Cicero and Horace. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. Publius, I'm pretty confident of. Afer, I'm not sure. If you do intend on looking into him, I'd highly recommend the article by Misha Teramura, Black Comedy, Shakespeare, Terence, and Titus Andronicus. Hmm. Thank you for the lovely podcast. Best Zarepa. And then in parentheses, Zarepa writes, from Saudi Arabia slash Pakistan slash Turkey. Just thought I'd mention, so you know your podcast is appreciated far and wide. Smiley face. Thank you, Zarepa. That's a great idea for an episode. Terrence, wow. Wow, wow, wow. I will see what I can do. Fantastic. Even included a potential guest. Let's see if I can put that together. And finally, an email from Rachel, who writes in from Oregon with a beautiful email I don't have time to read all of it to you. I'll share the highlights. She said she has appreciated the podcast during the quarantine, especially. Dear Jack, just a quick note of thanks for the marvelous podcast that I discovered last month. You've been toiling away on it for years in your basement, laboring on research, finding pithy anecdotes, pulling perfect quotes. And where have I been? Late to the party. I first found the History of Literature podcast while in search for more on the Brontes. I was due for a holiday season convo with a writer pal of mine who's working on a new play about the sisters and their moody brother Branwell, and boy howdy did I hit the jackpot listening to your show. It conveyed all the gothic gooiness in these books that I fell in love with as a teen and loved again when these macabre works were on fancy class syllabi in college. Now, I should mention, Rachel, that if I hope you heard both our episodes on the Brontes, because if you're interested in Branwell, especially the second one we did with our guest, Finola, should definitely be something that's on your list of things to check out. Okay. Rachel says she listens to the show while walking with her dogs and adds, thanks. I've lost track of how many episodes I've listened to now. As a playwright, I've relished all the tidbits you share about the enigmatic and glorious theatrical art form, and I especially appreciated the series of episodes on my favorite writer, Chekhov. Oh, Anton, where to begin? He's the best. But why, Jack, why did you omit the cold hard fact that Anton Chekhov was a straight hottie? This is the kind of thing your listeners want to know. Hopefully now they'll Google it and they'll thank me for this information. Hmm. <laughs> That is interesting. Chekhov, the straight hottie. Is that a cold hard fact? It's pretty true, I'd say. Don't look for the pictures of him wearing the monocle, but the one I sometimes use, the painting where he's young and you see him in profile. It's quite dashing. And this reminds me of something else I forgot to mention during the Nathaniel Hawthorne episode. He was a straight hottie as well. Remember his marriage to Sophia Peabody? Well... 
It began with a visit to Elizabeth Peabody, Sophia's sister, who saw him arrive at the door, ran upstairs to her sister's room, and cried, He's as good-looking as Byron. Hmm. Pretty high praise for a literary-minded set of sisters in the mid-19th century. So, yes, a couple of hotties. Chekhov and Hawthorne. But, of course, we emphasize their intellect and their artistic achievement here at the History of Literature. We'll leave the hotness to our listeners to discover. Our Oregonian Oregonian friend Rachel also recommends an episode on Les Miserables by Victor Hugo, which she says is, quote, a great book. I just reread it and stopped on every page, arrested by its beauty and fortitude. I love it. Hugo is a bigger-than-life figure. The story is airtight and will knock you sideways with its reminders not to be an asshat, end quote. She said she's been in the mood for big stories like the brothers Karamazov, and she had this to say about our episode on that one, which, oh my goodness, that was episode 250. We're almost on episode 300. The numbers race by when you, you do two of these a week, I guess. She said, quote, your episode on the brothers Karamazov gutted me, Jack. I mean, I was in the park, three dogs, bawling. People probably think I'm crying because... Three dogs, three leashes, total lack of personal dignity, but no, it was the story and the story within the story that got me. You inspired me to reread the book, and I have to say, at 49, it was better. After rereading the chapter on Liza Vetta, I had to go into my home office and be by myself for half a day. Literature is getting us all through this, isn't it? I am so glad I have your podcast in my lifeboat now, too. You're a generous soul, Jack, to share your love of literature. Thanks for this gift. Put Oregon on your... Did I say that right? <laughs> There's an Oregon, Wisconsin that we used to call Oregon. Oregon. Put Oregon on your travel itinerary when we can all travel again. Mountains, ocean, coffee, books and book nerds. We've got it all. All best. And may 2021 bring us all more joy. Thank you, Rachel. Those are very kind words. I would indeed love to have Oregon, Oregon, on my travel itinerary. Thank you so much for writing in and sharing such a beautiful email. So, with that in mind, let's try to stir up some joy here on the podcast. Mike Palindrome and the Cherry Orchard are next. Okay, joining me now for a look at Chekhov's play, The Cherry Orchard, is our old friend Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Supporters Club. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Hey, Jack. So, Mike, I spent the month of December of last year going through Chekhov's four greatest plays, and I asked you to identify five of your favorite lines of dialogue from The Cherry Orchard so we could do a draft of this play. Was it tough for you to come up with five? Yeah, I kind of forgot that you said five. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, what was so, your method? I just went through, I, I mean, I, this is probably my third time reading it. So I looked yeah. at the lines I'd already underlined and kind of picked more thematic ones than mm. usual. Because sometimes I just pick lines because 
I laugh out loud. Right. Or, um, but yeah, no, I can I can whittle it down to five. Oh, I did kind of a similar thing, and I'll be interested to see if we chose the same five because I had done it just noting the lines that I really liked, which narrowed it down to about fifty. And then I watched the Judy Dench version online, and mm-hmm. I realized that I had marked a bunch of lines that really are inconsequential, and <laughs> <laughs> just because they made me laugh, or I thought they were kind of a neat moment. But then I really wanted to zero in on the ones that really moved me when I was watching the the Judy Dench version. And so we had a few weeks off at that point because of scheduling and the holidays and everything. So I started over and I, I jotted Uh down, well, what were the, what were the moments that I found most memorable? And then I went back to the play to find those moments. And I think I had six or seven or, or so I, I noted them here as honorable mention, but, uh, sometimes it's not exactly a line. It's more of a speech or an exchange uh, yeah, they, they weren't my favorite witticisms, but I think they do capture kind of some of the high points of the play, at least for me. Yeah. So I, I, I think maybe oh. the ones I don't pick, I'll I'll just quickly mention them. Okay. So I asked you to do these in order. So rather than draft as we usually do by our favorite, uh, mm-hmm. I thought it would be good to do it so we could kind of walk through the play together and touch upon the moments as they as they would appear to a an audience member. So did you have any of your lines from Act One? Um, I did. Okay. I have, uh, and my translation of their names won't be very good, but I have Epi Hodaf, mm-hmm. who is a clerk, the clerk, and he says, I cannot approve of our climate. I cannot. Our climate can never quite rise to the occasion. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I chose that because rather than direct lines about the cherry orchard, mm-hmm or about you know the debt that's owed yeah and about the way the seasons are changing this seemed to be very symbolic of the rising tide of change mm, kind of coming at it indirectly a little bit yeah that are that somehow like it wasn't quite that they were you know static the the characters were static and that the environment was changing but that somehow it was like at war, like our climate can never quite rise to the occasion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Any others from Act 1? I like the line when the merchant uh, Lopa (laughs) and says, uh, don't cry, little peasant. It will be well in time for your wedding. Because her nose is is bleeding, I think. Oh, no, sorry. His nose is bleeding. His nose is bleeding. Oh, right. And the maid is alarmed. Yeah. I read a, that Chekhov, can't remember now if it was in a letter or if he was quoted by somebody, but he was very concerned about not making the merchant too much of a bad guy and too much mm. of a, a stock character of here's the evil villain who's pressuring them. And I think there were some staged versions or some rehearsal versions where he thought that was they weren't quite getting that right. They were turning him into I think he wanted him to be just sort of a an inevitable part of the economic changes that were happening and that he wasn't, it wasn't that he was an, an evil villain who had arrived to throw everything off, but that he was just a, an inevitable byproduct of the change in the economic circumstances. I, I think that take on the merchant is part of why 
the opening of the play really has this pull of history because it doesn't start with the sister and the brother. Mm. It starts with the maid and the merchant. Yeah. These, these, um, like ancillary characters who are kind of like waiting for the sister and the brother to arrive and her, her, her daughters. Mm -hmm. And I think that is just a brilliant stroke by Chekhov to create this feel of history because it's more the setting and the history than, you know, the main characters. Right. And you feel that this, this place belongs to them Everyone is so excited about their their pending arrival, and it's been such a long time. So you kind of wonder, like, well, how important is this place to them? They seem like they've half abandoned it, but then when they arrive, it kind of brings everything to life again. But it's all transitory, and it is a it is a great way to start. Okay, let me give you mine from Act mm-hmm. One. I had an honorable mention was where uh, the passage where the brother was talking about the cupboard. Do you remember mm. that one where he's? Um, I did too. Yeah, yeah, I like that. He's talking he, he, about it. It's really good in the in the play that I saw too, where he's basically saying, um, "Dear revered cupboard, I salute your existence, which for more than a hundred years now has been directed towards the <laughs> shining ideals of good and justice. Your silent call to fruitful labor has not faltered in the course of a hundred years, preserving." <laughs> and then the direction is with tears in his eyes, in generations of our family, a good spirit faith in a better future and fostering in us ideals of the good and of social consciousness. (laughs) He's getting a little over the top, but it was actually very moving in the version that I saw. Yeah, I think in my version, he also said, instead of the cupboard, they call it a bookcase. Mm. And he says, later on, and I marked this as an honorable mention, he says, my God, my God, save me. And today I made a speech to the bookcase. So silly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let me give you the one I chose from Act 1, which is the scene where Luba, is that's what I'll call her, she's the matriarch of the cherry orchard, and she uh-huh. is looking at the orchard through the window, and she uh-huh. says, Oh, my childhood, my innocence, I used to sleep in this nursery, I used to look at the orchard from here, happiness woke up with me every morning, and the orchard was just like this, nothing has changed, laughs with joy. All white, all white, oh, my orchard, after the dark and overcast autumn and the cold winter, you're young again, full of happiness. The angels in heaven have not forsaken you. If only I could take this heavy stone from my breast and shoulders, if I could forget my past. And then right after that, she says, look, our dead mother is walking in the orchard in a white dress, laughs with joy. It's her. And then... People interrupt her and she says, there's no one. I I was seeing things on the right there at the turning to the summer house. A white tree was bending like a woman. And it just kind of captures the, the orchard and what it means for her, the way that it's it, it's her remembering her youth and her past and the importance of the estate to her, the way the past weighs her down, but it also grounds her. It's a it's like an anchor, but in both senses of the word anchor, that it it keeps her in place but it also uh, keeps her from moving. And it it uh, soon after that, she talks about her talking about her little boy mm-hmm. dying and drowning on the estate. And I don't know, just her connection to the land really resonated with me. And I was wondering, do you have any feeling like that about any property? Um, I, I think I, I have that feeling about certain places, but I don't know yeah. if it's really... 
I was like, wondering, like neighborhood streets or yeah, or particular like, restaurants or or something. I'm uh, for I mean, listeners who don't know, you're a, a Manhattanite that uh, born, <laughs> and <laughs> so I wasn't imagining you with a plot of land that would. <laughs> Uh, you know, be as meaningful as something that you've owned or that your family has owned. But I was wondering if you've felt something similar with any of the residences you've had or anything. Well, I I kind of in my family famous famously refer to basically a tree as a park. Whenever <laughs> I see a tree, I go there. That's a nice park. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I there I think there are parts probably of Paris, the left bank where, you know, I just associated with the first time I was there and mm, mm-hmm. living in an apartment, living in, sleeping in someone's foyer so that every time he got up to go to work, I had to get up because you couldn't open the front door with my sleeping bag. And then when he left, I went back to sleep. <laughs> and I would always get up early to get the first uh, oven's uh, worth of baguette. Oh, right. Yeah. It yeah. was like six AM or seven AM and yeah, places like that. And I I mean I, I think what really strikes me about the cherry orchard is how much the orchard means to them, but it doesn't you almost forget about the orchard because you have all this stuff going on. Mm-hmm. You know, people being engaged or trying to figure out how to mourn for uh o- over the child the loss of a child and th- there's so much going on that yeah. And I guess we'll get to this is whether, you know, the orchard can really save them, mm-hmm. whether whether it's just it really it just stays a symbol. It stays, you know, it remains a symbol. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that a little bit now. I mean, they do have a, a plan that could potentially save it that they don't want to do. Right. The yeah. merchant is offering them like, hey, you know, there's the cherries are no longer profitable in a way that will let you keep this place. But if you were to, and it's basically the scheme that he ends up doing himself or, or planning to do himself, but he's telling them, you know, you could chop down some of the trees and put up some summer cottages and, and invite some of the serfs who are now free to, to rent them out and, and look toward purchasing them. And this is a, a more productive way to use the land. This could be a way for you to keep the, the estate and they just can't envision it. They view that as as gauche or just not as beautiful as the cherry orchard or just different. And, uh, you know, maybe there's some, some class bias there as well. I mean, that, that, that pervades today, you know, the whole, like, well, the neighborhood was great until, you know, the, the nouveau riche came and made their McMansions around the lake. Right. You know, (laughs) and I'd rather, I'd rather lose the whole thing than lose it in the, in what I consider to be the the proper form or the the yeah. the classy form that that would I I don't want to own it under those circumstances. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you're right. It, the play does have uh, a very very direct immediate plot mm-hmm. alongside uh, so much existentialism. It really grabs you. I mean, even me who doesn't have that much allegiance alliance with the the earth or the soil it you know the the idea of like remembering the view yeah. you had as a child i mean i love those moments yeah right uh okay so act two anything there i i know this is crazy but i'm gonna go back to my clerk uh 
<laughs> I almost feel like we should do with like best lines by certain characters, you know. Um, I just love this. This, you know, talking about existentialism. There's so much from Luba, yeah, um, that I could have picked, but I I went back to the clerk at, mm-hmm. at P. Hodorf Dof who says I read all kinds of remarkable books, but the trouble is I cannot discover my own inclinations, whether to live or to shoot myself. But nevertheless, I always carry a revolver on me. Here it is. And he pulls out the revolver. <laughs> which, which is just kind of a crazy scene. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. it reminded me of what's the play where the the the, the, the checkoff play where the character shoot tries to kill himself, shoots himself in the head. Which one is that? Is that And it seagull? doesn't work? Yeah. In in the yeah. seagull, the student uh, or the uh the son does at the beginning, but then he does successfully kill himself later. Oh, right, um, right. Vanya is the one where he chases a guy around and tries to murder him and, and <laughs> fails. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I had flashbacks to, I guess, to both those plays when he yeah. just pulls out the revolver. Right, right. <laughs> so, but but I do like this idea of assessing yourself. And, you know, another line in that was probably where... Luba, I don't know if you'll pick this line, but I think Luba says something like, why should we eat? Why should we read? Why should we, you know, there's like a little, it's a little mm. plea. Oh, yeah. She goes, why drink so much? Why eat so much? Why talk so much? You know, yeah. it's like, what's the, what, 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 what do we, what do we live for? Right. It does mean something, putting it in the mouth of someone who's at her position in life and where she is in, in terms of kind of wrapping things up with this orchard and looking back so far in her past, and it'd be a lot different if that was a, a 25 year old woman who was saying that. Yeah. Okay. So I had in act two, I had a, uh, yeah, Luba's description of her past and her trip, what happened to her when she was in France and, and the way she came back to Russia and how she was longing for it. I had that as an honorable mention. And I had the student uh, Trofimov as the mm-hmm. oh he's a he's a great character yeah. yeah and he he feels like kind of a stand-in for Chekhov and also yeah. kind of a a stand-in maybe for just ideas you know he's mm-hmm. it's so funny he's a perpetual student and they they're always teasing him about that <laughs> you know and at one point he says yeah. like why don't you find another line you know <laughs> <laughs> like yeah you're not the first one to say that. I think it's Chekhov is making it very clear. It's like he's somebody who is able to say the things that may be correct and maybe, you know, he's he's assessing things in the best way from an intellectual sense. But it's easy for him to say because he doesn't own this. He doesn't really work. He's 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 free to have all these opinions, but they don't he doesn't have to make decisions and he doesn't have to live with consequences. Yeah. I had his line where he says, all Russia is our orchard. The mm, land is yeah. great and beautiful. There are many wonderful places in it. And then I just loved how he kind of raised the stakes for what was about to happen here, where this descendant of, of serfs was going to purchase or potentially purchase the orchard. And, and these people were going to sell it to him. And he says, just think, Anya, your grandfather, your great-grandfather, and all your ancestors were serf owners who owned mm-hmm. living souls. And those human beings must surely be looking at you from every cherry tree in the orchard, from every leaf, from every trunk. Don't you hear their voices? 
The ownership of living souls has formed all of you, those who lived before and those who are living now, so that your mother, you, your uncle, no longer notice that you are living in debt at others' expense, at the expense of those people whom you don't let in further than your front hall. We've got at least 200 years behind. We have nothing at all yet, no defined relationship to the past. We only talk philosophy, complain of boredom, or drink vodka. It's so very clear that to begin to live in the present, we must first redeem our past, finish with it, and we can redeem it only by suffering, only by exceptional, ceaseless labor. Understand that, Anya. And it's like, just the way that it, you know, that he takes this historical perspective, and you know he's he's kind of the fly in the punch bowl, that not everyone in this family is going to want to hear from him, and we'll see that a little bit later, I think, with one of my other choices. But, but, mm-hmm. but he is kind of saying, you know, he gets it. And he's presenting it for the audience as well. And to say, you know, this family has been living off of the the bounty of this serfdom. You know, the, the reason why this was profitable in the past was that you had essentially this free labor from these serfs. And now that that's over, that's contributing to why this is no longer profitable. And for generations, you and your family have lorded it over these people and and you know possessed this fine house and this beautiful orchard but it was all kind of based on this house of cards and now that it's fallen down you're not going to be able to build it back up yeah no it's a great i think he probably has some of the best lines and the best scene changing lines Mm. you know in the whole in the whole play i mean i feel like whenever he's on he's in a scene he kind of takes over it yeah, although in my next one, uh, Luba, mm-hmm. maybe I'll jump to mine in Act 3, unless you have something in Act 2. No, I was going to say, uh, I, I, I do enjoy the, the references to billiards, though. You'd better bank the yellow into the side <laughs> yeah. pocket. This kind of, you know, there are touches like that that show their class. I guess the yeah. merchant says, quotes, uh, Hamlet, get thee to a nunnery. yeah. And yeah. Chekhov, he's often uh, he often ha- gives these characters these little verbal tags, you know, like something yeah. uh, something they say or or some little quirk they have, some hang up. I think it was his short story writer's ear and eye and and recollection for these kinds of personality quirks that make it, you know, they they kind of let you remember who people are and you kind of give some comic relief to some of these characters. Yeah, so yeah, maybe you should pick Act Three because. I've been picking first in every single one, so you you do your act three. (laughs) Okay, well, my act three is the one where the student says, you must look the truth straight in the eye, Mm -hmm. and then Luba responds, what truth? You can see where truth is and where, or let me start that over. She says, what truth? You can see where truth is and where falsehood is, but I have really lost my sight. I can't see anything. You're boldly solving all the important questions, but tell me, my dear, isn't that because you are young? Because you haven't had time to suffer as a result of a single one of your questions. You look ahead boldly, and isn't that because you don't see and don't expect anything terrifying as life is still hidden from your young eyes? You're bolder, more honest. You have greater depth than any of us. But just think, be generous just with the tip of a finger. Spare me. After all, I was born here. Here lived my father and mother, my grandfather. I love this house. I can't understand my life without the cherry orchard. And if it's now so necessary to sell, then sell me along with the orchard. And then she hugs mm-hmm. him, kisses him on the forehead, and then she says, and my son was drowned here. She weeps. 
you good, kind man, have pity for me. And he says, you know I sympathize with you with all my soul. And she says, but you must say it in other words, other words. The Judy Dench version of that is just chilling. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just have goosebumps even just remembering it. It was so powerful in that in the version that I saw. And it, a lot of me, when I see rich people in plays, I don't have a lot of sympathy for them. And I sort of roll my eyes and I'm always on the side of the underdog. And it's easy for me to be on the side of the student and and but I really felt the pull of what she was faced with and her dilemma and just the mm-hmm. kind of sad humanity of it that she was nearing the end of her life and, and looking back on it and feeling like so much of it was connected to the cherry orchard and just being at a loss for what to do if the cherry orchard was no longer going to be hers and, and part of her family's. Yeah, no, it's a it's a great scene. It, it, it's kind of the one I picked, um, but you, I just did a couple of sentences from it. But I, I mean, even before that scene where the, the student goes, um, you know, uh, yeah, I, I'm so remote from triviality. We are above love. And Luba goes, well, then I must be beneath love. Mm. Yeah. I thought that was a very good. That Their dynamic in this act is terrific. Yeah, right. Um, they, they're, they're kind of like not, they're unlikely uh, close, unlikely close characters. Yeah. And it kind of it kind of reminds me in a way of uh, conversations I used to have with people with with grownups. <laughs> I don't notice it as much now. I think that I am kind of a grown up with kids and everything. But I can uh-huh. remember feeling that way, like in college and grad school and and feeling like I would have all these ideas and I would have this philosophy and I would have the, the political views and I would be able to make all of these claims. And then someone else would sort of you know, say, yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm like, that's all very interesting, but I'm, I'm kind of worried about coming up with the mortgage for next month or, you know, the rent, or I've, I've got, um, you know, my kid is sick and I've got to figure out how to pay for the surgery or something like that. And it would just sort of flatten me that all of my high minded Mm -hmm. ideals and you could be right, but maybe that's not being right in the right way that, uh, you know, I'd sort of want to be him, I'd sort of mm-hmm. identify with him in this scene, but I recognize that she's in a situation that in some ways it isn't something that he is faced with and and people do depend on us and we can't always just be free to lob these missiles of truth everywhere. Sometimes they're they're not practical and, and sometimes they're just not sufficient. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I, I think, you know, a testament to the play that had, had the play ended with act three, I would have been immensely satisfied <laughs> still, you know? Right. <laughs> but of course we have to find out what happens and yeah. uh, act four is, is, is incredible. Yeah. Well, I, st- I had one more in act three. Uh, did you have any other lines in act three? Yeah, I had a couple. Um, let's see. Well, you do yours as well. I'll, I'll... Okay. Well, mine was the uh, the merchant Lopakin's speech after the auction, where he's so excited uh, about the results. And this was kind of set up by the students uh, when he was talking about the serfs, that their souls basically are hanging from the leaves and the trees and, and looking out back at the house, back at the family. And here he is now, the owner of this estate, and his ancestors had been serfs. And he... He's so triumphant 
And he's he's getting it almost reminded me of Dostoevsky in his, you know, when when a Dostoevsky gambler is on a run or something when he's when he's really excited about, you know, his new fortune. And he says, uh, uh, Luba says, who bought it? And he says, I did. And there's a pause. And then he says, I bought it. Wait a moment, my friends, if you please. My head is going round. I can't speak. Then he laughs and he says, we arrived at the auction and he kind of tells the whole story about how, you know, one guy was was bidding 15,000 and someone else put in 30. And so he put in 40, he bid 45, I bid 55. And then he says, uh, when it came to an end, I gave 90 over and above the mortgage. I got it. The cherry orchard is now mine. Mine. My God, Lord above, the cherry orchard is mine. Tell me I'm drunk, out of my mind. That this, All this is my imagination. Then he stamps his feet and he says, don't laugh at me. If only my father and grandfather could rise from their graves and see all that has come to pass, see their Yermole, their beaten, barely literate Yermole, who used to run about in winter barefoot, see that same Yermole buy the estate, the fairest thing on earth. I have bought the estate where my grandfather and father were slaves, where they weren't even allowed into the kitchen. I'm asleep. I'm only dreaming this. It's only illusion. It's the fruit of your imagination shrouded in a mist of uncertainty and then uh he picks up the keys which which have been thrown down the well the uh-huh. student has talked her remember the student talked the daughter into throwing the keys down the well to, to to sort of renounce it and he says she threw down the keys to show that she's no longer the mistress here and then he jiggles the keys and he says well it doesn't matter because <laughs> he's the owner and it's like this it's like this feeling i don't know it just he has no uh well maybe he has some regard for the family and what they're going through and having just sold the cherry orchard but he's so exuberant that he he can't help himself it's bursting out of him how excited he is and you can see where Chekhov wouldn't want this to be like the crowing of a villain but mm-hmm. more like just the excitement even as this is turning a page and closing a chapter for the family it's opening a chapter for the former serf who is now the has worked his way up and is now the proud owner of this orchard that is uh you know his his ancestors used to belong to this land and be possessed by the owner of the land and now he's the owner of the land and he's you know free to do with it what he will and and that the the orchard suddenly has this whole new beauty for him it's really a a transformative moment. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a it, it takes incredible acting to pull that off because you know it, it almost seems too villainous. Yeah, to right, me. Um, right. Like he's he's dancing on their graves in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I, right I, after I, that, he says, "Hey, band, play! I want you to li- I want to <laughs> listen to you. Everyone, come and watch Yermolay Lopakin bringing the axe to the cherry orchard and the trees falling to the ground. We'll build yeah. the dakas, and our grandchildren and great grandchildren will see a new life here. Band, play! <laughs> like, you just imagine, like, like this is the worst day of this family's life in <laughs> generations, and they're all basically in mourning and and despondent. And he's here." He's stamping his feet and he's he, he's calling for music and he's he's popping open champagne and it's uh, quite a scene. Yeah, the the only other line I had um, that you haven't talked about in Act Three is um, the one that ties to the lines I picked in uh, Act Four, which in, in line 
in act three the young valet says to his grandfather you are tiresome grandpa why don't you go off and die mm. and then in act four my line is the very end where the grandfather the old valet says i'll lie down a while you haven't got any you haven't got any strength nothing is left nothing Ach, you good for nothing mm. yeah is that the very end where they forgot it? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Right, the very and, last. And line then there. there's a there's a noise, a thud of an axe on a tree far away in the orchard. Yeah, yeah. So my uh, line from Act Four, which was my final pick, I had an honorable mention where they they say to the student, he says to the uh, the merchant says to the the student, "How many years have you been studying at your university?" and uh, mm-hmm. sort of to tease him and the student says do think of something a little more original uh, <laughs> and I like his speech about waving his arms waving your arms where he basically says you know talking about like you wave your arms too much when you talk which is kind of strange uh-huh. <laughs> uh, kind of strange advice to give but it's also kind of like saying you're a little too uh, you're not very refined you're maybe not um, suitable as a landowner yet you need to be a little more polished and a little more uh you know, yeah. but then and then he says, uh, or it could just be a, a reference to, you know, communication and and just I'm smarter than you. And let me tell you, you don't need to move your arm so much when you talk. We get your point. But then then he says you talking about these dakas and building them is also a kind of waving of your arms mm-hmm. and just kind mm-hmm. of a like, you know, you might be better reading the room a little more and not just saying the first thing that comes into your mind and not not crowing about everything and and being all excited when other people uh, aren't in the mood to hear it. But anyway, that was just my honorable mention. The one that I picked was the stage direction where it was the first time, not after the old man has his speech, which I think I actually did. (laughs) This is bad. I liked the old man's speech, but Mm -hmm. I actually kind of, I didn't like the way it was translated in my version, and so I kind of took some points off for it. In mine, it says, <laughs> I'll lie down a moment. You've got no strength. Nothing is left. Nothing. And then he says, oh, you big booby. And it, what? Yeah, yeah. How did they translate that in yours? The very last words that he says. You good for nothing. Good for nothing. Yeah, mine is big yeah. booby. And I like, like the who, translation, but it just ruins it for me. Big booby. What, like it. When was your translation done? Is it a modern? It's pretty modern. Yeah, it's penguin. I don't know. Maybe in British English, is that less? Uh, Mine's just... 1939. Oh, okay. Yeah, mine yeah. probably I've more got recent. A, I've got that. an old Random House Modern Library one. Yeah, that's good. I've got penguin. But anyway, big so booby. big booby. So I that's, just, that took me out terrible. of the whole moment yeah so so the one i had was actually before that but it's also the axe and the church it's the one where luba is mm-hmm. talking and she says uh oh my darling um uh, mm-hmm. what did she say oh oh my darling my sweet beautiful orchard my life my youth my happiness farewell farewell mm-hmm. and then you hear her ne- her uh her daughter calling mama and you hear the student crying and then uh she says to look at these walls these windows one last time our mother used to love walking about this room and Mm. then there's a a few more lines of dialogue of people leaving and and saying they're on their way and then the stage is empty there's the sound of all the doors being locked with keys then the carriage is leaving it becomes quiet 
The silence is broken by the hollow striking of an axe against a tree, sounding solitary and sad. Yeah. And, uh, it's just, ugh, it does feel like you're closing up this house, you're closing up this this multi-generational life, and it's uh, it's it's profound. But I, I I do like the fact that our our sympathies are not entirely with with them, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, and that right, like in that act, I, I have marked where the merchant says, "We turn up our noses at one another, but life keeps on passing," and then later. Luba goes, we are going and there won't be a soul left here. And the merchant goes, till spring. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's really, that really is the tension here. There's this, this feeling, you know, why shouldn't uh, the merchant be jubilant after he makes the purchase? It's a beautiful thing. You know, it's fantastic that he's able to own this after all of these years of oppression. And it, it, you know, and yet, we still feel the pull of uh, it's hard to give things up. It's it's hard to die. You know, that's kind of how I felt. It's like it's yeah. it's a sad thing to die and feel like all your memories are going to disappear with you. And I've got such a attachment to my memories. I think my thoughts and my memories are so glorious. It's hard to imagine that someday they'll just all disappear. And yet that's what we're all faced with. And that's part of, at the same time, there are young people mm-hmm. who are going to take the baton and carry things forward. And it's kind of like, in some ways, the, the change to the cherry orchard is like the, the human condition of leaving things behind and, and uh, other generations taking things forward. It's inevitable. Yeah, I mean, the whole, the whole you know, the idea of tradition is so explored in this play. Mm. Um, you know, just how blind tradition can be, but at the same time, you kind of fill in what you want the tradition to mean for you. Yeah. So it can be, it can be so, like, for all, I love the, the way the servants are so alive in this, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and the way, you know, they get maybe a watered down version of the water, the cherry orchards love and warmth, but they still feel that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I just think it's, you know, the, the theme of love and the cherry orchard is 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 beautifully done. The sibling love and all the all kind of like the affairs that are going on and um, the servants' loyalty for their their masters. Yeah, you see that. I mean, I'm reading the remains of the day again, and mm-hmm. and I'm reading Frederick Douglass, and you see that in some of his narratives of uh, slaves and the way they look at things. I mean, it's. Even when you're oppressed or even when you're not the one in charge or you're the one who's the servant, it can provide a kind of structure to your life and a kind of meaning. I mean, certainly in the case of slaves and serfs, it's, it's you know, the bad, I'm sure, outweighs the good. But it also change takes that away and can leave people feeling adrift or they can be nostalgic for it. And in the remains of the day, it's this um, it's, it's been this guiding principle of his life, his whole uh, way of understanding the world and his position in it is based on something that is created by serving this other person in this place. Yeah, it's it's a hard thing to have that taken away from you. It's almost like the kind of thing Nietzsche used to talk about when he would say, well, here's what happens if God dies. You know, we end up looking into an abyss like you've. You've based your mm-hmm. whole life around the idea of Christianity and God, and if I'm telling you that it's not there, 
if I'm telling you that God is dead, you are going to be faced with this uh, existential doubt because you won't have the framework that you had to explain the things you needed to explain or just to to understand your position in this crazy uh, spinning planet in this vast, empty universe. Amen to that. Mm. Okay, <laughs> wonderful stuff. So anything else to add about the cherry orchard? I have a little personal recommendation that if you if you back when we get when we get back to traveling again, mm-hmm. um, just make it the thing you read on a plane because it's perfect for a plane ride. Ah, yeah, plane of plane of a flight. So I used to read uh, Chekhov or Ibsen on planes right. whenever I traveled. <laughs> that was my thing. Yeah, the plays. Plays, yeah, yeah, right. Oh, okay. It was very relaxing because I'd be like, "Oh, it's time for the master builder." I'm on a plane, <laughs> so, and you can read the entire thing on a plane very easily. Okay, so. sounds good. Good <laughs> advice. Okay, Mike, thanks as always for joining me on the history of literature. Thanks, Jack. There we go. My thanks to Mike, of course, for joining us, as always, and to Stella and Rachel and Zaripa, our friends from around the world, for sending us such nice emails and lifting our spirits, putting some joy in our hearts. It's very generous to send an email just to say thank you or just to say, I appreciate what you're doing. I guess that is thank you. (laughs) I couldn't come up with anything else. Oh, we are a part of the Podglomerate at www.thepodglomerate.com, and we're teamed up with LidHub Radio. Learn more about our show at historyofliterature.com and help support the show, if you'd like, at patreon.com slash literature. I'll be back soon with some episodes on The Remains of the Day by Kazuo Ishiguro and our guest, Chigozi Obioma. Sorry, Chigozi Obioma. We have some more Mike in the can. Mike in the can. That should be a product. Mike in a jar. Mike in a can. Mike in a bottle. I'd like a few of those on my shelves for emergencies. Something I could uncork when needed. Mike talking about... he's He'll be here. We've already recorded it. He's talking about Proust and the Twitterverse, which has been diving into volume two i think they're done with volume three now but mike's here to talk about volume two within a budding grove we'll see what the internet hive mind had come up with when they explored that work and we have many other episodes in the works as well frederick Douglass is coming up soon and some keats and much else besides so please do subscribe you won't want to miss those i'm jack wilson thank you for listening and we'll see you next time Conglomerate, a sonic universe.